Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard. John Pielli here, Pass Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Of course, on the MTR Radio Network, hour two of the program. Uh, we're going to start to show off, uh, this part of the show at least, with an interview I recorded with a baseball player by the name of Randy Johnson. And of course, uh, you know, don't, don't get too crazy because we're not talking about the future Hall of Fame pitcher, the 300-game winner, the lefty known for... Uh, killing a bird with his fastball and obviously all the the uh, great accomplishments the left-hand pitcher had certainly one of the best left-hand pitchers of this generation but uh, there were actually two other Randy Johnsons they both played in the major leagues and they were both infielders the one that I'm talking to right now is actually the minor league field coordinator for the San Diego Padres and he's also has some experience in the front office uh, for both the Oakland Athletics and their Billy Bean and the Detroit Tigers and played for the Braves in 1982 and lasted there through 1984. He had had some tough times going up and down with the minor leagues, ends up playing in Japan for a year. But uh, a guy that was in college, he was actually a place kicker and was very good, was all state in California, and uh, it ends up affecting what he ends up trying to do. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Braves infielder and current minor league field coordinator for the San Diego Padres, Randy Johnson. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli. I'm joined right now by former major league infielder and the current minor league field coordinator for the San Diego Padres, and that's Randy Johnson. Randy, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, no problem, man. Before we talk a little bit about your baseball career, I was kind of fascinated to find out that you were, you were a pretty good place kicker in college, huh? just the athlete that played, you know, baseball and football and kind of, you know, shared the uh, the likes to each one? Uh, uh, baseball was my, my dream as, as a little kid. I did play pop 
you, so you said before you feel that the the, the ability to, to play football and the kick actually got you in for, for baseball as well, and that's how you got your scholarship, right? Correct. Uh, I had an office to go to uh, Oregon State, uh, Florida State, and San Jose State. And don't ask me why I picked San Jose. It was the, only, the last trip and closest to home. And for Florida, I just didn't feel like I could play. I'm on the Florida State or Florida State baseball teams. I thought I'd, I'd be on the team for sure, but not get a lot of playing time. So I put it in the season to go to San Jose State where I could play both sports. Yeah, so it ends up working out for you. You get drafted by the Mets in 1978. Tell us a little bit about your early time after you got drafted and, you know, how, how it worked out for you in the minor leagues. Well, I went out as a shortstop. Um, probably not where I belonged. I felt I was better, better uh, served at third base, but I had that power or short power to that point. I uh, ended up being able to play all over the place, which is the reason I got to the big league in the first place with the Braves, and uh, I was still in my, my ability to come off the bench and, and perform without playing for three or four days or even a week. Uh, Helped me uh, in every regard. I always wanted to play every day. I had a chance to play quite a bit when Bob Warner was in here in, in, in uh, 1982 or in 1983 or 84, so I didn't have to help myself, so that's kind of been the downfall of uh, my career. Now going back to you coming up and up to the majors, was there was there one person in particular that was a big influence or somebody you looked up to as you were coming through the ranks? Well, Lee Hoss was my manager in AA and Triple A, and he uh, had a lot to do with me getting there. And conversely, he had a lot to do with me not uh, making the team in '85 when I'd been in Atlanta for for three years. He got the big league job and shipped me out again in spring training. John Fielli here with former Major League infielder Randy Johnson. Now, when you know after 1984, and you, you mentioned about going to spring training in 1985 and not making the team, you know, take us back to that time because that had to be pretty rough for you. You're with the Braves organization for a while. You got some experience with a major league team. Um, you know, how how were you best able to to handle that? Because you know, coming up to the end of spring training, you're probably expecting to make the team. Well, it was the first year I felt comfortable. Actually, I had an arbitration. Never, we never got to it. We, we decided on a number, and you know, I felt like I uh, could kind of relax for the first time. But uh, on the injury side, I had an ankle that had bothered me the whole year prior to that, in '84, and a shoulder that I also found out I had a torn labrum in my my non throwing shoulder. They got me to do a surgery that had never been done before, uh, kind of a new procedure that didn't really work. So when I came to spring training, I, I lost some weight. Hoping it would help my ankle. Uh, they couldn't figure out what was going on there. And on day one, I was on the backfield uh, like a non-roster invitee, so I couldn't figure out what was going on. And very disappointed that I didn't make the team that year. I went to Triple A in a whopping 192, I think it was. Uh, never got on track. Never saw the ball well. Um, still had the two injuries that bothered me. And here, I finally told him I need to go see a specialist. And uh, I did that and found out that I had a bone on bone in my ankle, uh, more like a previous injury, and then uh, had that operated on a week after the season. And a week after that, I was getting my release papers, so I got 
two or something like that in the Pacific Coast and wouldn't sense. Yeah, and of course things end up going well for you, and then the year after that, in 1987, you end up going over to Japan. Uh, what, what was what was your initial reaction? Was this something that you wanted to do? Um, you know, you look at the you know the way things are set up there. I'm sure that you know you were, you were offered a good contract. Were, were you, did you feel comfortable going over to play in Japan? Well, it turned out myself and Rick Lance White, my teammates from from Phoenix, uh, were both offered opportunities to go over there and. Seven year I had in Phoenix uh, that year and not getting called up was disappointing, but uh, I understood how things worked. Uh, we went to the playoffs, it's a playoff race, and but it cost them a little bit of money to bring me up because I was split contract. So Jimmy Lefever basically told me he was the manager there. He basically told me that he asked him not to put me on the daily roster because it would uh, hinder my chances of going to Japan. So I took it and, and ran with it and had a good time. It was very very different, um, but Rick Lampard and myself I had a good time over there. I didn't uh, get to play as much as I liked. I was training, uh, so to speak, for the guy that broke Luke Eric's record initially, uh, Tasio Kinagasa. And was leading the team to hitting and, and actually not starting, so it was disappointing in that regard. Um, he retired after that year, and the next year I came back and was playing every day and got hurt, and that was the end of my. Hey, you mentioned about uh, Jim Lefevre, and of course Jim had uh, had his his own opportunity to play overseas. Um, so he he was pretty much able to sell you on the idea of of you know of, of Japan being a good experience and stuff like that for you. Yeah, he was uh, he was good to both Rick and I, but about letting us know what it would be like and the differences in the game and how hard they work, um, how the Sticks up, gets hammered down, or whatever the saying the goes. But we you know, a little over with open minds. We uh, we laughed at a lot of things they did, but uh, tried to participate, tried to try to do some of the exercises and drills they do, and take as many swings as they do. And after the first spring training, we uh, were both kind of worn out going into the first month of the season. So we tried to taper it off a little bit and, and work more more like the American way. You know, like they helped us uh, last through the season with that. Well, once again, John Pielli here with former Major League infielder Randy Johnson. Now, after you're done playing, you stay associated with baseball. You end up working in the front office for, for a little bit. Well, was, was this something that you were looking to do after your playing career? Well, initially, I, I wanted to be on the field as a as a, as a coach, and I was Uh, experience in the front office, a little bit on the field as a coach. 
obviously you played, and, and now you know now now that your current position kind of uh, encompasses all of that. Well, I, I pretty much have as much of a diversified uh, career as anybody with uh, the international scouting, international planning, uh, writing reports, working in the office, like you said, uh, getting getting my flip. But the did the hitting for one year in Detroit when our our hitting our coordinator was was sick. So I've done a little bit of everything, and, and always dreamed of getting back on the field and, and would like someday to possibly get to the big league as a coach. But I'm sure that's going to happen. But yeah, of course, and uh, you know, obviously, you're you're in a position right now where you get a chance to work with a lot of a lot of younger kids and stuff like that. Tell us a little bit for uh, for the listeners that don't understand. You know, as a minor league field coordinator, you're you know overseeing really all the minor league teams and stuff in the organization. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about what you, what the job you have in companies and what you get to do on a day in and day out basis. Well, spring training is just coordinating uh, the, the schedule, making sure everybody's in the right place. Uh, instructors are where they're supposed to be, kids are where they're supposed to be. Uh, what we do that day as far as the fundamental. Um, uh, Bill's practice and all the other stuff that goes along with it, making sure the pitchers get all the work in, getting them deep, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, once the season starts, it's, it's traveling around and, and working with all of our uh, roving instructors and managers and coaches we have in the system, uh, communicating with them, uh, kind of kind of in the way, obviously, being ready to the farm director. But also, uh, at the same time, working with the kids myself and, and offering what I may have. Uh, to the managers and instructors, so my ideas or philosophies or maybe we should try this with this guy, but always going through the, uh, the instructor that's in charge of that, uh, that part of the camp and making sure I don't step on anybody's toes, which it's hard to do sometimes, but uh, I'll let you guys do their job and uh, it's worked out okay so far. Is there anybody in particular that you you enjoyed working with, whether it's a younger player or somebody that's kind of a mentor to you? You mentioned Randy Smith, kind of uh, you know working with him and following him wherever he goes. Is there is there anybody else that stands out to you that 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 you really enjoyed having a chance to work with? Well, Gary Jones helped me out tremendously doing this job. I, I really had zero experience actually being on the field for a full season besides the, uh, the one year as a rookie game guy. And Gary Jones has done a little bit of everything in the minor from, from managing to coaching to actually doing the field coordinator job as well. And he, uh, he was my right hand man for his four years. And then last year when he got the third base coach, coaching job with the Cubs, I was a little bit worried that hey, I won't have my I got to go to uh, spring training and, and, and help me coordinate things. But Edgar uh, Rodriguez came in and filled his shoes very well. And he's uh, also experienced in, in the field as a field coordinator and years of experience as a major league coach as well. So, yeah, Gary Jones helped me out too. And, and I've worked well with, I think, all of our instructors and almost gone, come and gone elsewhere. But uh, we keep replacing them with it's just as qualified people. Once again, John Pielli here with Randy Johnson. Going back to when you, you played, uh, you know, a couple of years with the Braves, um, is there anybody that stands out in regards to roommates that you had? Was there anybody that you roomed with that you look back and say, you know, it was, it was pretty cool rooming with this guy? Yeah, I roomed with Eddie Brooks from AA. He was a pretty good major league player. Uh, 
by the time I got to the major leagues, I had a single room. But uh, Brad Cummins, uh, a good friend of mine, a room with him a few times, and Matt Sinatra, who, who coached with Lupinella in the big leagues for quite a, quite a few years, was uh, a very good friend of mine, still is. Um, I have some teammates that I really looked up to, Dale Murphy in particular, was in, in my mind one of the nicest and best, best human beings I've ever played with or been around. But it's just, it's just great to make friendships and be able to keep a lot of those uh, going throughout my uh, my career off the field and still stay in touch with those guys. And now and then I run into people that I played with, and it's, it's, it's very nice. It's very neat. Yeah, no question. I tell you, one guy that stands out that you just mentioned was Dale Murphy. I mean, he he had a, he had a tremendous career, and really looking back on what he did, and as as top of a player he was in all of baseball. You know, it's a shame he's not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's it's a shame to hear his name, and I think the first surgery was not done very well. And when I saw him, I think he was with Philadelphia after that, and I saw how bent his knee was. I asked him what happened, and he goes, "It just." Whatever they did didn't didn't take well. I think that kept him from reaching the was it the 400 uh, home run milestone? Yeah, yeah, he was he was pretty close. Yeah, but uh, yeah, as far as and I would play with the Braves and the big leagues, but there's no better player at the time than Dale Murphy. Offensively, defensively, uh, was just a joy to play with and watch him and watch him stretch out and dive for balls and make incredible catches and. No question. Listen, Randy, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and best of luck to you. I appreciate you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with former Major League infielder Randy Johnson. Obviously a lot of things he's been able to accomplish, and really summing up the interview, here's a guy that played, managed, coached, has pretty much has done everything, including work in a front office and international scouting and stuff like that. So really a, a true baseball uh, mind in regards to everything that he's accomplished. What we're going to do right now is we're going to take a brief break and we're going to get back. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some conventional stuff, including the New York Mets and Sandy Alderson and kind of putting his regime in perspective with a very powerful point. And then we'll finish off this hour with an interview I recorded while I was down in Florida with former Major League outfielder Greg Blosser, who played for the Red Sox and Team USA. And this was actually the second time I, he's been part of the past ball show. So uh, exciting part of the program coming up. We got a little bit about the Mets and a Greg Blosser interview coming back after this. Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal. 
served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. MTR. Ace's empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Ace's empty vlog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show here, MTR Radio Network. And of course, don't forget to check out johnpielli.com as well as tweet at me at John underscore Pielli as we keep the program here interactive. And of course, Bases Empty Blog, if you. Followed it over the last couple of days. You saw my article about Wrigley Field, which you touched on in the first hour. But you'll also find an article that I wrote titled, Is the Lack of MLB Depth on the New York Mets an Organizational Philosophy? And you say, hey, where does that come from? Well, here it is in, in a, few, a few words. People are generally critical of a team that underachieves, especially a large media market like New York. Are the New York Mets considered underachievers? Definitely not. Perhaps you can make a case that talent at the major league level has taken a step back every season since 2011. All-stars like Jose Reyes, Carlos Beltran, R.A. Dickey, Francisco Rodriguez have all been traded with the likes of guys like Ruben Tejada, Lucas Duda, Sean Markham, and Frank Francisco, all guys brought there to replace them. Yes, the acquisitions of Zach Wheeler, and Noah Syndergaard uh, renew the the thoughts and the fans' reason and give them something to be excited about for the future. Perhaps they could be, maybe uh, along with Matt Harvey, the next coming of Seaver, Kuzman, and Gentry, or Gooden, Darling, and Fernandez. Of course, the nightmare scenario could be in 1998 when they had a tr- young trio by the names of Isringhausen, Pulsifer, and Wilson. The major thing that has bothered me over the last three-plus seasons, lack of depth at the major league level. The trade of Ike Davis to the Pirates guarantees another Mets player, Lucas Duda, an everyday job. Don't worry, Lucas. You don't have to look over your shoulder because there's not another first baseman in the Mets organization that is on the verge or even close to making an impact at the big leagues. All you have to do is look at or ask Ruben Tejada or Travis Darno, for that matter, uh, if they feel any footsteps in regards to their own job securities. The rebuttal of my statement would probably have to do with the thought of giving a player a shot. In, in my opinion, only Darno has not been given a complete chance to prove what he can do. Tejada is then 
during his third season as the hand-down everyday shortstop, and Duda was a regular in the second half of 2011 as the Mets right fielder, was given the opening day job in right field in 2012, and was given the opening day job as the everyday left fielder in 2013. Once again, no safety net is in place in case Duda does not perform. I apologize for not being able to have the actual stats, but I will assume that the Mets have to be near the bottom in all of Major League Baseball in player trades, free agent signings, and waiver claims since Sandy Alderson has taken over as the Mets general manager on October 29, 2010. Since then, the Mets have made 14 trades, signed 14 free agents to Major League Baseball contracts, and claimed five players on waivers. They also have taken three players in a Rule 5 draft. The total trades, MLB free agent signings, and waiver claims for the Mets is 33. Now, what does this mean? I mean, maybe there's a couple teams that have less than that. I would assume most teams have more of it. So what I did is I researched the teams within the the Mets' own division. I didn't have time to research 29 teams and dig it up all on the internet, which is what I did. It wasn't an easy job. It's not like you could click on a website and all this information comes up. So if you're a listener and you have a better way to access this information, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. I will read it until the cows come home. But here is what I did. Um, I researched the Marlins, the Phillies, the Braves, and the Nationals and got the total player transactions of free agent signings to major league contracts, trades, and waiver claims since October 29th, 2010. How did I do? Well, we started with the Miami Marlins. They have made a total of 20 trades, 14 MLB free agent signings, and seven waiver claims for a total of 41 to the Mets 33. The Atlanta Braves made in the same time 25 trades, 12 MLB free agent signings, and five waiver claims for a total of 42. The Philadelphia Phillies, a total of 24 trades, 13 MLB free agent signings, and seven waiver claims for a total of 44. Finally, the Washington Nationals, 28 trades, 10 MLB free agent signings, and eight waiver claims in the same period for a total of 46. So the Nationals had 46, the Mets had 33. All four of the other teams had over 41, and the Mets had 33. So when you think that's bad, let me break down some of the trades that the Mets made amongst the 14 that are on this list. We could start out with two of them that involved Colin Calgill. One coming from the Oakland Athletics to the New York Mets, and then, of course, his trade from the New York Mets to the Los Angeles Angels. Hey, you take a chance on Colin Calgill, nothing wrong with that. But other acquisitions that were made that are amongst this list. The big trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers to get Ching Lung Hu for left-hand pitcher Michael Antonini. This is also counting the trade of shortstop Omar Quintanilla from the Mets to the Baltimore Orioles in 2012 for cash. Finally, one trade saw the Mets deal right-hand pitcher Elwin Ramirez to the Nationals and the Athletics dealing infielder Brandon Hicks to the Mets. Now, when we're talking about moves, obviously none of these were major moves, but we're counting them when we're talking about trades. You want to talk about free agent signings, two major league contracts? Well, uh, 2013 signing of Daisuke Matsuzaka was a major league signing. So was the signing of Rick Ankiel, who came right from being a free agent up to the major league level. Amongst the five waiver claims, the Mets did get Anthony Recker and Jeremy Hefner. 
who Hefner, despite the Tommy John surgery, will pitch again for the Mets. And Wrecker is the Mets' backup catcher. You've reached the point of listening to this where you wonder, what the hell am I talking about? Or what the hell does this mean? When I've been bitching about the Mets needing to make some sort of move to help their team a significant move and upgrade, to me, it's not all about money. To me, it's about what seems like a lack of interest in having depth on this team. And maybe the cheapness of the Wilpons has hit an all-time low, where the amount of players that could be on a major league roster in a given season will be limited just to save a couple bucks. Lack of competition means there's no chance that the Mets could overpay a player who is not playing every day. That's what it's come down to. I admire the trades of Beltran and Dickey because of the potential of Wheeler and Syndergaard. Other than those two moves, Sandy Alderson has not put his stamp on a team. How many other general managers will be on their fourth season with a team and still run out more players that were signed or acquired by the previous general manager? Maybe that's why the major league team will be a second division team for the sixth consecutive season. Moving on, John Pielli here, Passball Show, johnpielli.com, right here on the MTR Radio Network. I'm going to play an interview that I recorded with former USA baseball outfielder and Boston Red Sox outfielder Greg Blosser. This was taking place in Sarasota, Florida, and I did the interview with longtime baseball author Billy Staples. So I'll ask a question, and Billy will ask a question, and we'll go back and forth. And this will pretty much take you up until the last minute or so of the show. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League outfielder Greg Blosser. This is John Fiala. I'm happy to be over in Sarasota, Florida. And I'm joined by Billy Staples, well-known baseball author, of course, author of Before the Glory and Billy Ball, which you could, of course, find you know, on the internet, a very, you know, very well-known book where two books where he's interviewed a series of baseball players about their childhood and about life in general. And I'm also joined by former Major League outfielder Greg Blosser, who was a first-round draft pick of the Red Sox in 1989, played for Team USA, and, you know, had a couple seasons in the Major League and played baseball professionally for 15 years. Before I get going, I do want to welcome you guys, welcome both of you guys to the program, and Thanks for having a couple minutes. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Sean. And Greg, I'm going to start out because uh, you know you had a chance to be drafted out of high school when you were 18 years old or 17 going into 18. And around that time, um, you were obviously considering going to college. Uh, you had you had uh, agreed to go to what am I mistaken, Mississippi State? That's correct. All right, and you know you end up getting involved or get chosen to play for Team USA, um, USA Baseball, of course. So, you know you take a big trip. You know, overseas, first thing that comes to your head, you think of your involvement and what, what USA Baseball meant to you. Oh, it was just absolute pride. I mean, you know, I think most kids, if they're going to think about playing Olympic baseball, it brings a big smile on their face, you know, and, I, and that was one thing. I, I was just tickled pink that I had the opportunity to do it. And if, and if you chose it for the final team, I was just over the moon, so it was fantastic. Now, was this something you? Well, when was the earliest time that you got considered for, or or you were considering it? Was it was it when you were asked to be part of it, or was it something that you were competing for for a while? Uh, what was the process involved well, in picking a team? The, the process started off like this. It was kind of funny. Um, my coach, what they did was, is I would, they wanted to find out how fast you can throw the ball from right field into second, right field into third. So my coach basically timed what I run to first. 
time, how quick. I, so the evaluation process was basically like that. I, it was an invite, so I'm not sure how they made the choice or, you know, what the process was. But there was a preliminary, you know, your coach times, you're running the 60, you know, they, you know, and, and there's other little things that they wanted you to time out and send in a little report. And then from there, however they made the decision, I'm not sure. But they gathered us all in South Dakota. Basically you, you said to us that um, the, the way the United States got their team together is they put together four teams mm -hmm. to go to South Dakota, one from the north to south, the east and the west. So you're on one of those four I'll teams. South there, yeah. And and you know that obviously while you're there, besides playing these games, what's going to end up is there's going to be one team, and 75% of the guys will have had a good experience and they're going to go home. Right. I am, um, and. If you are picked for this team, you get to go to Australia. So I take it away from, from Blosser because you're a kid from Florida in South Dakota, but you're also seeing the best of the game at your age in our country, which mm -hmm. is educational in itself. Mm -hmm. So I say to you, um, when you were there and you're watching your peers, who, right, what player, if you picked one, what guy did you go, holy, you know, who impressed the kid that's going to end up being the first round draft choice. Who did you say to one of your buddies, or well, like, this guy can, this guy can hit, or this guy can pick, or this guy can throw? If you're picking one out of those 80 kids in South Dakota, I'll tell you who, who, who was you. the most impressive. He didn't play a lot of, uh, professionally. It was a, his name was Kiki Jones, Keith Jones out of Tampa. Oh, Kiki Jones was so athletic. He would uh, do the Ozzie Smith when he had to go out to shortstop. That's, and that's awesome. That kind of thing. Uh, but he threw 98 miles an hour in high school. And, I mean, when you see, you know, when you come from uh, high school ball where you might see one, two guys throw 90 miles an hour, he was throwing 98 miles an hour. And so it, that he stood out to me. You know, when, when I saw a guy throwing that hard, I knew, okay, you know, I'm going to have to really turn it up enough. Um, I, I parlay that with just one more question. That's how unique out of uh, – you can have all these sports and soccer and football and basketball. That's how unique professional baseball is. Mm -hmm. um, you just got done telling me that the guy you remember is Kiki Jones. The guy you remember brings it at 98. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, for the baseball fan, while they're listening to this interview, they're going to have to go to Google and yeah, look him up. Yeah. So he's the best of the best, right? Well, and you know, he stood out in my mind. Um, there was other great players there. Sure. But, I mean, as far as, like, just pure, unbelievable skill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you got guys throwing that hard. Those yeah. are the guys that are... So you may be hard. I, I'm saying to you personally, because even Hall of Famers are hard on themselves of what they mm -hmm. expect them on. You might be harder on yourself. Kiki Jones is sitting somewhere today, right? Yeah. He has the right to be hard on himself, too, sure. because he had all this. Sure. It's so hard mm -hmm. to, to make it to, to the Absolutely. show. Absolutely. There's a lot of factors against you. I have a question about it. I mean, once again, Jeff Gale, Billy Staples is to my left, Greg Wasser is to my right. It's going to take a second to talk about the setting here. And <laughs> it really is. It, it, it may not be the best-looking setting, you guys, but dude, you think of all the trees and the leaves and everything that's involved here, and we're just three guys chatting. Uh, Greg, were you drafted by the Red Sox before you were selected for the USA team? No. Okay. No, that was all done. Complete. Uh, that would have been complete. Uh, that was December of 1988, so basically by the 1st of, of 1989, that had all been completed. We had played all our stuff down in Australia. And they did that so all of us could play our high school season, you know, because most of us were still have one more year of high school. Oh, exactly. Some were going on to college. So a follow-up question. You were drafted, of course, by, by the Red Sox. Mm -hmm. I'm sure one 
probably doesn't compare to the other because they're two different things. What was the greater thrill? Well, like, like you competed obviously for a long time to get yourself on that Team USA, mm -hmm. which meant a lot to you. And of course, you knew your talents had the ability to get drafted by a Major League Baseball team. What was the greatest thrill? That well, that winning that medal was definitely a greater yeah. thrill. I mean, when I got drafted, you you know some sort of fear enters into it because now <laughs> I got to perform, really perform now. So I, you know, when I got drafted, it was I would say it was more of a sense of relief. Okay, that's over now. Let's get going. But with that Olympic medal, it's something I always cherish. I mean, there's you know no doubt about it. You know, so um, uh, definitely two different feelings there. Uh, more of relief for the draft. Yeah. Would you share uh, one or two or three names of who else got that Olympic medal? That yeah, sure. Know? We got uh, well Charles Johnson. Uh, he was catcher in the big leagues for for the Marlins for a few. You know Ryan Klesko for Atlanta, uh, the Braves. Um, oh Jesus, Brent Gates played for Oakland. Uh, we, we there's a lot of guys on there. I mean I, I would have to you know because when you play for so many teams the names. You know, uh, sure. But uh, they were all uh, you know Scott Stahoviak was on that team. Uh, Tyler Green played in the major leagues from that team. He's a pitcher, a great pitcher. Um, um, it just goes to Mark show you, was on that way ahead of time, there was a lot of talent on the oh, yeah. team. And also, what's great about baseball is you guys bumped heads, that guys on that team that had that experience, as you were going through your career for the next decade. Yeah, we, we ran into each other all the time in the minor leagues, or major leagues too, you know, so, yeah, it was awesome. It was an awesome experience. I mean, uh, that was one of the best times of my life, for sure. So, Craig, what was the last time you connected or spoke with somebody from, from Team USA, that, that, that whole experience in Australia? Wow. Wow. Um, I know. You know what? I talked to Klesko a few years ago. I ran into him somehow. I was, he was with Brett Boone. Oh, you know what? I was on the spring training out in Arizona, and I ran into Ryan Klesko, and he was with Brett Boone. Brett's a good buddy of mine, uh, too. Last year, um, as strange as it is, um, Tyler Green and I have done a lot of clinics yeah, together. Tyler and uh, Tyler, um, I, he was making a transition from East Coast to West mm -hmm. Coast, and uh, I knew he was going to move out to Arizona to be with family. But I was out there working, so I go in for a bite to eat. Just a strange way the world works. And who's sitting at a table where I eat, the table next to me, but Ryan and his daughters. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Ryan and his daughters, um, uh, Tyler and his daughters. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so Tyler Green is guy. out there. And you know what? They, they don't come much nicer. No, Tyler's Tyler the nicest guy, right? He played down on that team. I mean, Tyler had a one heck of a, of a breaking ball, curveball. And I got to face him a few times in pro. Yeah, never, never any nicer than Tyler. But there was a lot of guys on that team that there was a really gifted team. And there was a lot of guys on that team that, that did well. And uh, man, he was just the man. He he was basically really the core of the team. But I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this to a Red Sox question that most people listening to this interview. When I say this, when I say this name with your minor league experience and who your teammates are, the average fan is going to connect with the Houston Astros. They're they're going to not realize that you came up through a system and baseball is through transactions. And his career is with the Astros, but his roots are, are with the Red Sox. Um, give us a little background on you and your friend in the Red Sox system, Bagwell. Well, where did you guys meet? Out of, out of 20 other guys on the team, you guys. You no, know, they put us together. I mean, here, here, here. When you first get there, when we first, we first uh, we got drafted, and you know, they bring us all together that first spring training. They just, it was, they put me with Jeff, you know, and uh, he was just, just the way Jeff is, just unassuming, nice guy. But I'm going to tell you what about Jeff, which you knew instantly. When you saw him hit, you knew that he was going to be a major league player. He's, he was unbelievable. I mean, he stood out like, there's several people that stood out. Bagwell, Tomei. Now, Jimmy and Bagwell, when they hit, 
they hit with some serious authority. I mean, it was a different deal. You know, when you when you come up and you, you see a lot of players, you go, man, that guy's got it. That's how I looked at Jeff. Jeff was a, you could just tell. Yeah, I'll tell you, one thing you don't even, well, a lot of people don't know about Jeff Bagwell is he was originally a third baseman. Sure. He didn't make the transition to first base until he was traded to the Astros. Yeah, was, yeah. Well, where I give credit to, and every, have yeah, exactly. everybody has a job in baseball. Can't come in, yeah. Whoever was scouting for, there's 30 teams and there's scouts and there's assistant GMs and GMs. Whoever was scouting for the Astros saying we have to figure out the psychology of a trade, right? You are a fellow player. You notice in your whole life, two guys stand out during that period, and that's Tommy sure. and Bagwell. But somebody for the Astros really earned their paycheck because exactly. the Red Sox got Larry Anderson. Oh, I know. It was the worst trade of all time. They still here. You know, he was leading the. You know, he was leading the Eastern. It was the Eastern. It was still that they got the Eastern League now. Still, but he was in three three thirty in the Eastern League. It was his first professional year. If I'm not mistaken. It was Lou Gorman that made that trade. Lou Gorman did that. And, and I'll tell you what, Lou was well. And he, he, he could tell you now, he would tell you that's probably one of the worst yeah, he's had a lot of success, so no shame to him. He's done a lot of very good things. Bags is a New England guy. Yeah. Jeff was crushed, and later in his career, that's why he didn't go sign as a free agent to remember that he could have. He could have yeah, went, went to Boston. You know why he didn't? They were going to pay him, too. They didn't want You him. know, it, it's interesting. Uh, we're talking about this concept. Last year, and I've, I've, I've interviewed uh, a lot of big-name Red Sox and low-name you know, Red Sox, but talk about, um, on this note, first-class operation. When they did the 100th year anniversary of the Red Sox, very interesting um, from a player's perspective. So the fans that are listening to this, um, it's how you're treated after you leave the game. The Red Sox invited. I was there. Every, that's what I'm getting to. Yeah. I, I, I didn't Everybody know the Red Sox. They, the Red Sox invited every living Red Sox. It was Sox. unbelievable. I got to take my dad up. They, they contacted yeah. me, and yep, they contacted me and said, "This is what we're going to do." And uh, if you want to bring, and I said, well, I, I, there was only one person, my, my dad. You know, my dad came up with me. It was the best time. We went up. It was awesome. Yeah, and, and, and I'm gonna tell you what, the Red Sox are a first-class organization. There is no doubt about that. So these you know, guys have talked about the busing, that the wives got to go shopping. The it was unbelievable. Uh, you got where where you were eating after you all got together. Awesome. Um, I'd like to I'd like to talk about the. For Red Sox fans especially, sure. um, is they have the largest group of Red Sox for a hundred-year history on the field at one time. Bobby Doerr in a wheelchair. That was awesome. Pesky was there. Was the Pesky was The last question. big appearance. Mm -hmm. When you were on the field, right. I, I want to go into because uh, the wonderful thing about interviewing you is your level of humbleness. Yet you had to be the main man. You're on the field with literally a hundred years of history. I would love to know, right, you're surrounded, right? It was awesome. What that, you know, what, what we were, you thinking? Well, we were waiting underneath, you know, when you, when you get, whenever you go to Fenway, people that have never been to Fenway, they know, it's, it's, it's an event, okay, you know, before the game, there's people out, there's music going, and you can feel the buzz in that stadium, and I, I remember when I was standing underneath, and you would, uh, the guys would get announced in front of me, Frank Cohen and those guys, and you could just hear that crowd and you think to yourself, it's almost like heaven, man. I mean, there's just nothing like baseball like that, you know. It was just a great night. No, the Yankees just totally destroyed us that day. I mean, I think Rodriguez had a couple bombs. But anyway, to me, the feeling of being, on, to answer your question, whenever you stand on something like that, for me, I look at, I, I'm a big history, I think of Cobb. And, you know, 
Williams. The all-star game ride of men going around. Yeah, because you can't help it. Yeah, and when you're standing there, you're under, and I'm waiting to come out, and you know, and you're looking at how old the stadium is and the crowd. Fenway's a magical place. There's no doubt about it, man. I mean, it absolutely, man. absolutely is. I want to switch. I want to switch you so that that fans know, right, mm -hmm. the, the human side of you. You're there with your pops. Yeah. And uh, for a couple of days, you're surrounded by these guys. So rather than being a player or a former player, did your dad or you want your picture taken during that, you know, 48, 72 hours sure. in Boston? Did you get some pictures taken? Oh, absolutely, man. Who'd you go for? I, you know, you know who my dad really liked was Rick Wise. We call him Al Man. Yeah, Rick Wise, one of the greatest guys of all time. So we hung out a lot with Al Man. Yeah, we, my dad, he doesn't like to go anywhere. Okay, my dad's an old, picture an old cop, you know. He doesn't want to go anywhere. But he wanted to go on this trip, and we had, it was just a great time so yeah I mean he blended right in I mean we were there they had the whole deal you know hobnobbing and everything so it was a great time it was a great time plus you got a John Fialli here Greg Gloucester Billy Staples uh, while you're at this event one thing I want to know you're, you're there obviously with your father mm -hmm. which Red Sox players either current mm -hmm. maybe, maybe played with you maybe played before you mm -hmm. which ones are you mingling with which ones are you catching up with who, who are you talking about I, I really I mean I, I love Mo Vaughn you know Mo was there for my time um, Viola was there um, Clemens didn't make it I'm not sure why Roger didn't make it um, but um, I, I like hanging out with Mo I like hanging with you know I I just, I, to me, it was, I just, even just being there, I felt a sense of pride. You know, even though I got a little bit of time with them, you know, a little bit of time in the mix, I felt this sense of, man, you know, I'm part of this thing, even though I'm, you know, I'm not a huge part of it. I'm part of it. And for me, it gives you a sense of, you know, and I made it. You know, no matter what, I made it. Absolutely. You know, did so. the event mix in? Did you mingle with, spend any time with the fans? There's so many of you guys in, mm -hmm. right? Um, whether it be at the hotel or going from the hotel to a bus or the bus to the ballpark. Uh, if you're a Red Sox fan, if there's any day of your life mm -hmm. that you want to be there, mm -hmm. uh, I would have, if my family was a Red mm -hmm. Sox fan, you got to be there because sure. all the guys are there. Did you do much mingling? Sure. I mean, they were at the front of the hotel where the players were they staying. Were? And the, the Red Sox fans... There's a whole nation out there. I still get three or four days, three or four times a week. I just got three in the mail yesterday of car people who want a car signed. They have no idea how they find me. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a whole big time nation out there. Yeah, so yeah, when you go like so, when you go into Fenway, it's just that whole. It's a, it's you know there's ballparks and then there's ballparks. You know, and uh, so. You know, that's how I always kind of looked at it, you know, so. There's, there's three, by the way, um, from the fans' perspective, uh, that's, that's not specific teams. There's three places in baseball from the old and there's one with the new. Even though there's 30 teams, there's Fenway, there's Wrigley. Mm -hmm. No matter which one of the three stadiums it is, there's Yankee. And then for the transition, um, when you go into Camden Yards, that is where we went back Beautiful to. Park. No more of these circle stadiums. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's fair to ask you, um, tell the, the, the fans whether you're a left-handed or a right-handed hitter, you're at bat, in the batter's box at Fenway, and um, you see the Green Monster. The Green Monster has made a career. The Green Monster has destroyed guys hitting yeah. psyches. Yeah. Talk about the batter's box and which side you're on. Uh, all right, I'm a left-handed hitter, so... Um, <laughs> I got that big field that I'm shooting for out there. No, but you know, you, you, you think about going the other way. Because the wall, when you're standing at home plate, it looks like it's right there. I mean, it's so weird. Um, but uh, 
you know, so but my thought process, well, my first and back, I was scared as hell. I mean, I told you it was, it was Keith Gordon. So I was just trying to not, you know, have my knees knocked because you're finally there. Uh, but, uh, you know, my thought process is, you know, just don't just don't make yourself look bad. I mean, that's really what you're thinking of the game. You know, try not to screw up, you know, and whether that's right or wrong. I don't know. When you went out to the field, did you go out to left field or right field? I played both right and left in Fenway, and I definitely like playing left better. Give me Much easier. Did, did you play a ball? I mean, you yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I played, my most memorable play I ever made in Fenway was Kirby Puckett hit me a line drive, and I was playing left field. And I went up against the wall, caught the ball, and slammed him against that wall. And I'm going to tell you something. That is a hard wall now. <laughs> but Kirby Puckett was one of my, you know, I forgot about him. He's one of my favorites. You know, he's passed now. But Puckett was one of those guys that always took me under his wing every time I saw him. Really? Every single time. Him and Dawson were the two best guys like that. Unbelievable. Andre Dawson, Dawson was just a, I, I see Andre when we were at a alumni event not too long ago last year. And Rice was there at the same event. Andre's the best guy. He, he came to Dars last year. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, they made me feel comfortable, man. I mean, you know, the the rookie, you know, the rookie thing wasn't too bad. Um, I know Ken Ryan. Uh, if he ever hears this interview, he'll you get hazed a little bit at the big leagues. When we were leaving New York Stadium, was when we had to wear. They took our suits out of our locker. Okay. Greenwell was part of this, and Hatcher, Billy Hatcher. So they stole our suits. I was a little upset because I had a really nice jacket. So they wait to go. Do we go to Canada? So you have to go through customs. Well, they put in an old granny suit. You know, had to wear a dress. Well, Ken Ryan, you remember Ken Ryan? Big yeah, Ken yeah, Ryan. Yeah, right <laughs> full of pride, this guy. And I love Ken. I saw him at the 100-year anniversary. I told him about the story. They made him wear a dress, and he literally cried. He was so upset. He had to leave Yankee Stadium in a dress. His whole family was there. I'm not wearing this. I was called up last year. So stuff like that. Yeah. But they're really good. I mean, you know, Danny Darwin and Frank Hall and those guys always, they, they you know how baseball guys are. Very, very few of them are good people. You only meet a very few that are. Most guys take you to the wingman, and they don't. They don't feel any animosity. You, you said Danny Darwin. Um, Love I, I, I can't. I can't let that go by because I spent a lot of time with him, yeah, especially when I'm in schools. And um, he is the way he talks and his sense of humor. He's like an old cowboy. Oh man, he is across from George Strait. He's got that big Texas deal down there. Dude. He's a real cowboy guy. He truly yeah. born and raised in Texas. His brother made it up to the big leagues for a little bit. And Danny, when when you talk to Danny Darwin, literally two decades on the pitching now, oh, yeah. and you got your money's worth, the Hall of Fame pitcher Warren Spahn, before he passed away with the start of this project, I asked him, 363 games, you pitched into your 40s, and his answer was, Billy, I... I wasn't no longer the, even the best pitcher on the team. I just was fearful. I didn't know what else to do with my life. So I figured I'm going to literally play this game until no one will pay me any money. So I say to you, was it, um, as you give this answer, was it the love of the game and the competition? Or was it also, holy crap, um, if I do give this up, what the heck am I going to do? Where, what direction would that answer overseas and, and keep playing? Where do you go with that? Now, what's going through your head? Um, rephrase that real quick. Um, you went with different organizations sure. trying to get back up. Still definitely had your skills. But you, you one thing I, I, I love about the game, and if you look you up on the computer, you, you stay with it, man. Well, you so went overseas. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I understand do that. what you're saying. Um, I, got, I, 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 played, I played as long as I got enjoyment out of it. Uh, to answer your question, the most fun I had playing baseball besides being an amateur, 
was when I went into that Atlantic League and played for Sparky Lyle for Somerset. Here's why. There is no pressure if I'm going to get called up, sent down, released, whatever there is. You're just there. Yeah. And that's when I really started. To, and I didn't have any envisions of going being a major leaguer again. I never really thought, well, you know, I'm going to hang on. If i got one more shot. You know? Right, because I know there's money, and there's, there's ways to make money outside of baseball. And I think Warren was probably in a different era, too, so that might have been a little bit different. Um, so, no, I never thought to myself, man, I'm going to play until they don't pay me anymore. I'm going to play until I enjoy it. Um, uh, and then I, that's when I stopped. I was like, you know, I, I just, just I got a, I got a kids, young kids at the time. I'm gonna have to go figure out making money somewhere else because I'm not making much money in the Atlantic League. Okay. I'm making three grand a month. It isn't that much, you know. So. Final question I want to ask you, Greg. Last game you played was 2008. Was for an independent league mm-hmm. game. How much do you remember that game? Oh God. Uh, I remember when I went. That was for Lancaster, and I remember. Why in the world am I trying to come back and play this game? I heard every day. I pulled a new muscle every day. So that I limped out of there. Um, I thought I could play it again after a few years off. Um, I remember thinking to myself, that was when I knew, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with it. Except Everybody gets old. I'm too damn old to play this game anymore. It's a young man's sport. Now, you can try to play it to your 40. Now, you play it consistently, you can't do that, maybe. But you can't take a couple years off and think you're going to go out and play again. Okay. And that was how it worked for me. So, you know, that's how it ended up. All right, big thanks to you, Greg. Appreciate yeah. you being part of the program. Billy, as always, great job. Of course, check out Billy's work. Uh, for the glory, Billy Ball, the whole thing. Talk to you guys soon. Big thanks to Greg Blosser and Billy Staples for being part of that interview. Now, if you want to listen to that interview in its entirety, it was about 50-something minutes. We get in a lot of other stuff. I had to cut it down a little bit so it fit on the program. Check out the interview on johnpla.com. It's the second Greg Blosser interview that dates on it. You'll see that it it was done in March of 2014. But also, big thanks to Denny McLean. Big thanks, of course, to Randy Johnson. Greg Blosser and Billy Staples for being part of the program. We'll be back with you next week with another episode of the Pass Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com. Of course, check out JohnPLA.com for all of my past shows as well as my interviews and Bases Empty blog talking about conventional and historical Major League Baseball. Be with you next week.